Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, my wife and I, this year, we celebrate 18 years being married, amen? It's a beautiful thing. And there came a point um, after about 10 years where we began to get a question because people would begin to see us together and they would begin to ask us simple questions like, how? How did you do it? How did you make it? How are you all still happy? And what we can acknowledge is that when you see a couple together for a long time and you see them very present together, you see them enjoying one another, Whether we go out to eat, whether we're on a train, people always ask this question, how? How did you do it? They're not asking, how did we get married? They're asking, how are we still happy? How are we still together? In night of that, that that, that would make us think that there is a level of mystery to marriage. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. He is there quoting Genesis, where Moses would talk about the two becoming one, leaving and cleaving, and this being a union, and such a deep union that no longer are there two, Jesus would comment in Matthew, but there is now one. And then Paul says in the next verse, this mystery is profound. He says, marriage is a profound mystery. The word profound there is where we get the word mega from, like mega church or mega center, meaning this is an exceptionally large, great mystery. This is a hard mystery to solve. This thing can be very difficult to understand. The mystery is profound. My wife and I, Over the years, we've tried to find things to be able to watch together, and we've landed on one genre. For whatever reason, we love watching murder mysteries, particularly Dateline, 48 Hours Mystery, every now and then 2020, but sometimes they want to do like a real world news report, so we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about death, murder, murder, kill, right? (laughs) Pray for us. And we watch this all the time. And you may know a person like my wife. My wife is the figure outer. You know those people? When you're in a mystery, the figure outer person? My wife is the figure outer. So we'll be sitting there watching it, and they'll, you know, they'll do a few fake people, like the people that you know, you know, they kind of, this could be the person, but it's not the person, right? And then my wife would be like, "Mm, no, no, that's not it. That's not it. That's not, she didn't do it. She didn't do it. Then all of a sudden, about the third person, there'll just be a person that's walking across the scene. She'll be like, watch him. Watch him. Just watch him. That's all I'm saying. Just watch him. Just watch him. Lord, have mercy and let her be right. At the end, they'll be like, and he's the one that did it. She'll be like, I told you, didn't I? 
I told you, just watch him. Look what Paul says. He says, the mystery is profound, but look what he says. The mystery, and this is what he says, and I am saying that it refers, meaning he's about to tell us. He's about to solve the mystery. He says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He says, if you want to understand the mystery of marriage and how two people make it, just watch him. Just watch Jesus. Just watch the way that Jesus operates. You'll be able to solve the mystery. If you look at how Jesus pursues people when they're broken, watch him. If you watch the way that Jesus loves on people when they're inconsistent, just watch him. And if you see how Jesus loves people deeply in spite of themselves, I say this to everyone getting married. Some people have been told marriage is 50-50. I say marriage is 0% when the, 100% when the person's giving 0%. You're giving everything in spite of someone giving nothing. That is making a marriage real and making a marriage last. The truth be told, the phrase we use is till death do us part. But if marriage, Christian marriages, if they end at 50% divorce, they couldn't have meant that. They must have meant till our anger do us part, till our money do us part till our frustrations do us part, till our rent do us part, till the kids do us part. There comes a point in a relationship where it will be tested. And I believe that what is happening here in this text that we're going to look at today is we are going to see that there is behind the phrase, till death do us part, that is not based upon a personal commitment to a person. That is based upon covenant language. That's the kind of words you use. And it's echoing the life of Jesus. Because Jesus in our relationship says, till death. And he commits to us in spite of ourselves. Well, it is with this in mind that we are going to look today at an Old Testament marriage. How marriages were set up and how marriages were meant to point to the Lord throughout the entire process. And my prayer is that at the end of this time, that you would see how deeply Jesus-centered marriage is always supposed to be. That you, in the middle of getting frustrated with one another, if God would have you get married, in the middle of being intense and there's tension, that you would while you're looking at one another, you'd look at the man, Jesus, because he will solve the mystery of your broken moments in marriage. Amen? The picture of marriage in the Old Testament started with the arrangement. Two people would have an arrangement. They didn't have uh, dating apps. Amen? I learn about a new one every week. I'm always amazed by them. Praise God for what he's done through them. Amen? But there wasn't that. There wasn't seeing people on social media. There was generally arrangement. Now, arrangements had a lot of problems because oftentimes, particularly for women, they would be bartered almost like uh, for, for uh, money and for land. But the essence of it, the principle must be understood. That arrangement, marriage arrangements, were built out of this idea that you had two parents 
that believed that they knew you better than you knew yourself. That if you were going to make a decision about who you were going to be with forever, it might be helpful that someone guides you or even make that decision for you since you don't know yourself well enough. This idea, we obviously will never go back to that day. And this framing, we obviously will never use as a means of connecting, although I heard some TV shows do it, I guess, for fun. But there is a principle that happens that I think we ought to see in arrangement. And the idea of arrangement was, I am not making a decision for myself by myself because I'm not of myself. I need other people to be a part of this lifelong decision. I need other people committed to me a part of this commitment I'm going to make to someone else. I've given them authorization to speak into my relationship, an authorization to speak into who I choose. It is from there that we would see that from the arrangement, we get to the betrothal. Betrothal was much different because that was a time when you would get ready to be married after essentially you were engaged. Betrothal and engagement were very similar. The difference between betrothal and engagement is that in an engagement, you give the ring, you put it on social media, everybody cries, everybody's happy. But if you want to back out, then people just forget or they ask you. But in a betrothal, if you wanted to end the relationship, you had to get a divorce. So it shows how the permanency in betrothal was defined early on. In the betrothal period, after the marriage was arranged, you would have this defined words. The bride was called the kala. The groom was called the katan. And the betrothal period was a season of preparation. This preparation was, in essence, an agreement. Agreement that you would come together and be committed to one another. You'd be preparing for marriage. The gentleman, the katan, he would be with his father, learning about the Old Testament, having marriage modeled for him by his father. And then the daughter of the bride, the, the daughter and the mother, she would have mom sit with her and talk about from the Old Testament what it meant to be a wife. And they essentially would be discipled by their parents, taught the ways of God, and taught the ways of marriage. And from there, you would essentially see a communal way in which the woman and the man would be prepared. A communal way in which parents are speaking in, brothers and sisters are speaking in, and they would never let their daughter or their son choose a person that wasn't right for them and that they wouldn't be prepared. When the church age, we know many of us come from broken families. We know many of us come from broken situations. And so it is in light of that, as we try to figure out who we want to be with, it would be appropriate for us to consider 
that maybe I shouldn't make this decision alone. That maybe I need to authorize people to speak into my life and to speak into who I'm going to be with. I love meeting people's booze. I do. I do. But far too often, I'm informed but not involved. Amen? So I just got to act like it's all good. I'm like, hey, how you doing? Okay, okay, okay. And it's great. But a lot of times, I'm not involved with the decision, but I'm involved with the counseling after. And the truth of the matter is, wouldn't it be apropos? <laughs> wouldn't it be helpful to just start a conversation early on? I can't stop you from getting married. I can't start you getting married. I cannot come in the way of your love. <laughs> but I do believe I'm called of God to shepherd sheep. And if you want to be pastored, it might be helpful to involve your pastor. But it also might be helpful to involve some brothers and sisters. Because we're all going to pretend it's all good when you don't involve us. You see? And, and furthermore, where, where I think it is important, you're going to see this in, in Song of Solomon chapter 8. The wife who's now married, and we've been following her, and we've been tracking with her, but she's going to talk about her own family as her own family prepares for marriage. She says this. We, look at this, Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 8. We have a little sister. She has no breasts. Move on. What shall we do? What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? Listen, what shall we do for our sister on the day that she is spoken for? I believe we're responsible for you and with you. This is not a singular decision on your own. And then she says something really interesting. If she is a wall, we'll build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Here, this woman is picturing her sister and picturing when a man is going to approach her sister. And she says that my little sister is going to end up in two categories. She's either going to be a wall, and if she's a wall, she's going to, we're, going to, we're, going to, we're going to build on her. But if she is a door, we will enclose her. The idea is the imagery of a fortress. And it is imagining that intimacy and the desire to guard intimacy is a battle. And it is imagery, it's giving imagery of this young lady, their sister, as either a wall that you can't get through or a door that opens, that has hinges, that's open to intimacy too soon. And what they're saying is if she is a wall, she will enclose, we will enclose her with boards. We're going to make sure our sister is protected if she's got the kind of personality where she won't protect herself. Now, 
Ain't a lot of amens to that, but I understand. But understand this. We're not in that day now. You have to, you, and this is for men and women, you have to make a decision whether you are a wall or a door. Amen? You see, I know people go out with wall intentions, but they end up as a door at 11 o'clock at night. They're more open. And all you got to do is just be like, look, hey, 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 sis, hey, 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 my bros, my bros, my bros. Beep, boop, 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 boop. Yo, 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 I'm going out. I'm going out. We're going to go out, okay? I'm feeling mad wally tonight. I'm feeling strong. I'm feeling really wally, dog. I'm feeling like a wall. But call me at 11 o'clock just to see if I'm doorish. You know what I'm saying? Just to make sure. No door. I'm not doing no door activity, dog. And I'm saying, we can't tell you how to live your life. You've got to invite community in. You've got to invite it in. Because better to invite us into the battle than inviting us into regret. It is better because it, what it, the imagery here is it's protecting you. It's protecting your decisions. And so this is all part of preparation is protecting your intimacy with God and rewarding, letting the night of your marriage be a reward for a guard of, of who you are. Because who your, your body is such a dynamic part of who you are. It's such a dynamic part of your identity. God gave you that body, and he wants you to protect all parts of you, not just your mind and your heart, your home and your money, but your body as well. But none of us can fight you on that. Only you and the Lord ultimately will know in that, that other person. But if, if you notice this young lady, as she speaks to her sister in chapter 8, verse 10, she says, I was a wall. And my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. She says, Basically, she ministers to her sisters and says, I protected my sexual experience for my marriage. I was a wall. And she says, my breasts were like towers. So basically, in a warlike tower, in a theme, you would have a wall and the towers would be your last defense. And so if you got past the wall, you'd go right to the towers. And so she was saying, I was like a wall and my breasts were like towers. That was the last place anybody would go. And so what she was saying was, I put guards around myself in order to protect that area of my life. And then she says, then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. The word peace there in Hebrew is the word shalom. It's, it's this idea of being together. It's this idea of God orchestrating almost like a tapestry, weaving things together. And I just encourage you tonight. I know that the majority, I know the majority of our church is single. I know the majority of our church certainly would desire being in marriage. And many of you are content in singleness, but even still there is this desire. But I believe you want to honor God. And I believe you want to honor God in all your ways. And it is with this in mind that when you honor God with your body, 
When you honor God in holiness, particularly in that season of your life, she says, I kept myself pure. No, she says, I'm sorry. She says, I was one who uh, finds peace in his eyes, or his eyes are one who finds peace. He says, when he looks at me, he finds peace. And she says that in light of the fact that she was a wall. There's something about maintaining holiness when you're dating, holiness when you're engaged, where there is a shalom that happens in the relationship, a peace in the relationship. And then when you operate with sex and all types of other stuff, with everything close to sex, there are other elements that add to the relationship. And it is the difference between the spirit and the flesh. That with the spirit, you find love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. But in the flesh, there is warring in the flesh. There's outbursts of wrath. There's jealousy and anger because the flesh is indicative of impulsiveness. The spirit is indicative of discipline. And when you decide in that season that my sexual experience will be a part of my spiritual disciplines that I will reserve for a season that is not now, instead of living a life fleshly and impulsive because she looked good tonight and I just got her, you know what I'm saying? Because of that, when you, when you live that way, when you live impulsively, it's a principle in your life, not just a moment of the night. It's a principle. Impulsiveness is a principle. It's a way you operate. And when there is the principle of impulsiveness, it always carries the burden of shame. And in her eyes wasn't shame, it was peace. And I want for you all in that season of your life to look at each other and see peace and not shame. To see control and love and joy and not shame, not wrath, not the burden of pretending. Now, there is grace abounding for wherever you're at in your relationship, and there's grace abounding for this season of preparation you're in, for those that have been dating or currently dating. But I want you to know you can start today to operate not only in grace, but in truth. And the way you operate in truth, operate in grace, you can always hit the reset button. Praise God. I hit it all the time. Sometimes I think my relationship with God is that reset button is broken. Like, let's start again, Lord. You can always hit the reset button. But by operating in truth, it's going to begin by inviting others in and just asking God who you can invite in. Brothers and sisters, I want to move on and talk more about marriage, but I just feel, I feel it is important to note that, I, I, again, I cannot stop you. I cannot stop you, you know, when I, was, when I was in the world, boy, I was good at lying. And I learned, I cannot, I don't know, I don't, I don't know who be telling me the truth. You know what I mean? I don't know. You could be just fooling me. But I want to encourage you. Prepare well. Prepare yourself well. Because what I find is people go fast in relationships. And then they break up. And they go fast in another relationship. And then they break up. And they go fast. 
last in another relationship, and then they break up. Or they don't have a relationship, and then they've been praying, and all of a sudden somebody comes out of the sky, and they just decide, we're going to go fast. But then they break up. It is without a doubt that I can encourage you to go slow. But it is also with this in mind that you have to understand if you keep hooking up with people and breaking up with people, you can get good at breaking up. And you can get so good at breaking up that one day you might get married and you have this tension inside of you within relationship. But you've had all this breakup practice. You've had all this divorce practice. And you've gotten used to being able to say it's over. And endurance is not a principle of your heart. And so what I want to encourage you to do is go slow. To involve other people. So that when it is a forever thing, it is a thing that you can celebrate and enjoy. Now, some of y'all are going to say amen and still not going to listen to me. I've been doing this a long time. Amen. <laughs> some, I've literally, I've been, I've, I preached this sermon several years ago. I had people like, yes, yes, obotata, yes, that's it, that's it. Still did whatever they want. So I get that this is just about today for some of you. So you don't have to listen to this. But I want to guarantee you, if you act 100% married, breaking up will definitely feel like 100% divorce. Trust me. Trust me. When you go fast in anything, stopping immediately always hurts. It always causes damage. So always better to go slow. Look at what this young lady says in Song of Solomon 8 and 6. She says something to keep in mind. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Look at what she says. Love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes are flashes of fire and the very flame of the Lord. And what this woman is saying about her marriage and she's speaking to her friends. She's, she's already said that to go slow in relationships, she says, because love is as strong as death. It is so defining. It, is, it traps your heart and it hurts badly if it ends. That's what she's trying to say. But then she said the flip side of it. She says, jealousy is as, as fierce as the grave. She says, whenever you think that the person does not have 100% honor to you, when you don't think that they have a seal over your heart, that word seal is the same way, way that you would get a signet ring. A signet ring would burn in and um, it would burn in like your uh, initials into something. And that would be like your credit card to say, that's mine. And what she's wanting to say is, burn me as a seal in your heart. Make sure you're mine. I want my name over your heart. Your heart is my heart. And that's what relationships feels like. The minute you say, I love you and I care for you, you start using ownership language. You're mine. I'm yours. And so whenever you have something that's yours, if it is not yours anymore, it feels stolen. And, it, and that's where jealousy arises. But be encouraged. Jealousy is the natural byproduct of ownership. You're supposed to be jealous. If it's yours... 
If it's yours, you're supposed to be jealous. What are we talking about? What are we talking about? If it's yours. If it's not yours, if it's communal, that's something different. That's you and the, I don't But I'm saying, if it's yours, if you see somebody walking down the street with your stuff, you'd be like, excuse me, that's mine. What do you think is different in relationships? My wife has every right to be jealous. Every right. <laughs> you know, there'll be times, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm funny, you know what I'm saying? I'm humorous. So every now and then I might, you know, I might, somebody's coming out of backstage pass, and I'm just like, oh, so it's just a woman, you know, I'm just like, ha, ha, ha. So, you know, and then I said, wabang, you know, and I'm just talking to him. My wife has every right to be like, what y'all laughing about? What's funny? I like to laugh. I like humor. <laughs> Put me in on the joke. <laughs> she has every right because when I said I do, we don't take last names for signatures. We take last name because of ownership. And it wasn't just because she has my last name. She's saying, I am yours. You are mine. So I should be concerned. So you understand? She says it's fierce. So just make sure when someone says they're yours, they mean it. When you says you're someone's, you mean it because jealousy is as fierce as the grave. It's intense. And you've felt it. Some of you have felt it. Some of you thought the relationship was somewhere it wasn't, and that jealousy monster just started eating you alive. Better to go so with clarity than fast with confusion. And that means you have to be very intentional. Well, this is all in this imagery of the setting up the relationship. In the betrothal period, it would be all this preparation. The sister is encouraging the young, uh, the, the sister is encouraging her younger sister on how to live with a man and what to do and to go slow. From the betrothal period, you would have the contract, and that's called the ketubah. And this ketubah essentially is a, a presented contract, essentially saying that the father and the son, meaning the, um, the, the, the groom, would come together, the father the bride, and they would have this contract written, and he would say, I want to be with your daughter. They would actually have a contract written. From that contract, you would then have a dowry. The dowry was what one would call the bride price. This bride price was a moment for the future son-in-law to be very generous to the father. He would give something great in order to honor the father and how he stewarded the daughter. And then the father would be accepting of him because of that great price. From there, there would be a chalice of wine. The chalice of wine would be given to the bride-to-be. If she accepted the wine, she was saying, I do. If she rejected the wine, she was saying, I don't want to be with you. From there, you would have what's called the breaking of the plate. Two mothers would come together and they would throw a plate down 
and it would show the permanency and the seriousness of the moment. And then there would be this moment. The plate would break. The son would leave, and he would say to the bride-to-be, okay, now, I need to go and prepare a place. Because what he would be creating is what's called the chuppah. And the chuppah was actually a room in the home of the father's house. This was an additional room on top of where the father's house was. Now, what was interesting was is that as the young man would build the chuppah, he did not know when he was done. Only the father knew when he was done. So he would literally say to his dad, Are we re- am I ready to get married now? And the father would look at the room and say, no, not yet. Only the father knew he would supervise that time. One day, the father would look to the son and look at the room and say, the room is ready. The time has come. Go get your bride. A shofar would blow when it was all finished. He would go before, he would go to the house of his bride and he'd blow a shofar, bringing his friends and family saying, now is the time to be married. The wife would now come down out of her house, ready, prepared to be married. This would now be a mini celebration. You would move from that moment into the day of the wedding. The day of the wedding you'd be standing before the priest and the priest would cut open the hand of the husband and cut open the hand of the wife and he would put together the blood in their hands. The priest understanding that Leviticus says that life is in the body of the blood and he would join their hands together, mingling the blood together. It was a picture of covenant because at that time, the way that you made a contract, the way that you ensured that you were going to do what you said you were going to do was through a covenant. And the only way that you could ratify a covenant was through blood. And so what you would do is you would take a lamb or you'd take a ram or you'd take a goat and you'd cut that animal in half and you would put a part over here and a part over here, a part over here, a part over here. And then the two people wanting to sign this covenant contract would what they do what they call walk between the parts. And as they walk between the parts, what would happen is they would be looking at the different parts and saying, if I don't fulfill this, may this happen to me, what's happened to these parts? Death do us part. And so what is happening here is all these images that he gives, so this was not just a bargain, but it was a covenant. So then finally, there would be a covenant sign. This would symbolize the covenant. So the katan and the kala would exchange rings. And so this symbolization of the covenant wasn't just to show off for friends. It was to show off this idea that a covenant contract had been signed. So in essence, whenever you see the rainbow, that's not just for us to look at the sun and the stars. That's us uh, for us to be able to be reminded of the Noahic covenant, to know that God would never destroy the earth again. This is all images that God has prepared to give us reminders that I'm good for my promise. And so that's what a ring is. A ring would give us that moment. I think we've solved the mystery, y'all. I think I get it. I think I can look in an Old Testament wedding and I can see the mystery 
of marriage. You see, what Paul says in Ephesians 5 is that the mystery is profound about marriage, but I'm talking to you about Christ and the church. And what we have to understand is that the church, this church, that when you give your life to Christ, you become the bride of Christ. Oh, but we're not with him yet. We're in the betrothal period. We're in the waiting room. We're preparing. But, but understand that our dowry got paid because when he says it is finished, he paid our dowry. Understand that whenever we take the covenant cup, the New Testament blood, whenever we take that, we are taking the chalice of wine saying, I do again. Oh, and the beautiful thing about that is that, oh, and we're going we're gonna to take communion at the anniversary, amen? So, because, you know, that's when we come back together. But listen, when, when you take that, isn't it beautiful? You can take it again and again and again, reminding you, say, I do again, I do again, I do again. I receive your grace again, but all this is the amazing thing that in John 19, this is what Jesus actually said, in my father's house, there's many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, best believe I'll come for you again to take you to myself. Oh, he's building our chuppah right now. Oh, he's preparing the rooms right now, a place for you. And understand 1 Thessalonians 4 and 16 says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangels and the sound of the trumpet of God. The shofar is going to blow and he's going to be waiting us. And then the part we didn't talk about, the part, the best part is the party, y'all. Oh, come on. I've seen some of y'all at these parties. Yeah. It's the party. It's the wedding feast. It's the wedding feast. And Revelation 19 and 7 says the wedding feast will last forever. Just think about that. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you. I've seen y'all wobbling. Wobble it. I've seen y'all wobbling. I've seen y'all at these parties. It's fun, isn't it? They are a window into heaven. Feast that will last forever. Joy unspeakable forever. He says, let us rejoice and exalt. Give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. And this is what he says. And his bride has made herself ready. She has kept herself pure. She has loved him when he wasn't there to be ready for him that day. And I will say to you, church, as we close this series, that, oh, how many weddings did I do this year? Good God, I had to get another suit, praise God. How many weddings did I do? And I was honored to do them. And we did 15 some weddings, and I would do 15 more. But I, as much as I love doing a wedding, I am enamored when I get 15 testimonies of people saying, man, I love Jesus more and more every day. Some of you want to get ready for a wedding, and I get that, and I want to get you ready, and I want to do your premarital, and we can do it and set it up. But if you're not getting ready for that marriage, no, you're getting ready for a marriage. You're getting ready for the moment of being with the lamb that was slain on our behalf, and contentment is found in him and joy will be in him forever. It is with that church that we know
that Jesus is enough. My wife and I were in a discussion yesterday. She said, you know, honey, it's easy to talk about contentment when you're married. I said, that's true. That's true. It's easier to talk about contentment when you're married. But marriage contentment is a thing too. Because I know people who are married and lonely. I know people who are married and malcontent. And understand contentment. As much as I want you to be married, I want you to be enamored by the love of Jesus. Because that will carry you through singleness, marriage, and into eternity. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We thank you, God, for the beauty of your words. And we thank you, God, for the images that you've given us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that even now, even now, that you would teach us your ways and that you would guide us for those that are single and those that are married to know that you've prepared a place for us, that you long to be with us, and that the Spirit of living God is preparing us right now to see you and be with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.